0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated
2: do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. (laughs) Sometimes the right approach is to shake things up and see how you can implement change properly. From my perspective as a developer, City Hall has been a hard place to work with in certain cases because things get dealt with really locally and often the politics locally are a challenge to work through. And sometimes you forget that really planning and urban design need to be more detached than they are in certain parts of town.
3: Welcome to the new and expanded 60 minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to hold a roundtable on the municipal health of our city. Then we're going to talk about mindful parenting. We're also going to find out about cooking with the kids. And lastly, we'll learn about the natural treatment of hypothyroidism. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. I'd like to welcome our first guest. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. I'd also like to introduce Chris Spoke. He is the Executive Director of Housing Matters. In 2017, Chris launched Yes! In My Backyard, a housing availability and affordability advocacy organization. He's responsible for building and maintaining relationships with key stakeholders, including municipal councillors, members of provincial parliament, and industry associations. Welcome back, both of you. Nice to see you again. Thanks for having us. So, as we speak today... The Court of Appeal has stayed the order of the lower court affecting the upcoming elections uh, for Municipal Council in Toronto. So instead of having 8 gazillion councillors, we're going to be down to what, 25, 27? 25. 25. So this is an important issue for any developer because it, it may impact on the way things are being done in the future. What are your thoughts? What do you, th- what do you
2: think about the reduced council? Is it going to help or hinder? Hard to say at this point. I think that it's a it's an interesting move because when you're not happy with the way things are working, forget all politics. Sometimes the right approach is to shake things up and see uh, how you can implement change properly. Right. You know, from my perspective as a developer, City Hall has been a hard place to work with in certain cases because things get dealt with really locally and often the politics locally are a challenge to work through. And sometimes you forget that really planning and urban design need to be more detached than they are in certain parts of town. Right. Uh, to me, part of what has to happen, you would think, is uh, having more powers go to the mayor to be able to sort of set a policy across the city as to what we're trying to achieve. It's been hard to uh, to see how certain parts of town follow the provincial guidelines in terms of policy and, and look to intensification in the, in the appropriate areas. In other parts of town fly in the face of uh, of provincial uh, policy and say, even though that this is a transit node and even though there's supposed to be development here, the voice of uh, local ratepayers is more important.
3: I, I want to circle back to something you just said. So I, I agree with you. Either this is going to strengthen the mayor's position in that he has less factions to deal with, or it's going to empower individuals who now have even bigger fiefdoms, and by individuals I mean municipal councillors, to sort of act as though They are the barons and lords and dames of their little area. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I think most Torontonians probably objected to the way it went down, but I don't think many of them are really upset about the fact that we may, you know, something needed to be done with council because, in my view, it was completely dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And to the point of whether or not this will be beneficial... Uh, to development and building more housing, which is something that I think we need in Toronto. Um, the optimistic case would be that um, councillors are already acting as barons of their wards, and what this does by increasing the the area that they represent is it spreads them a little thinner and makes it a little harder for them to get involved in every individual development application. And really, when a development application goes to the city, it should be between the developer and planning staff, and it should be decisions should be made based on good planning principles and not whether or not the councillor objects to it for political reasons. So I think an optimistic Optimistic take, and again, we'll, we'll have to see what happens, right. is that this helps depoliticize the system just by having fewer politicians um, overseeing kind of broader geographies.
3: Right. And, and going forward to a point that you made, Mitch, you were talking about the provincial policy. And what you were referring to was a, actually a liberal policy. So for those who think that, the, you know, the, that you were referencing the new government and perhaps their agenda with respect to municipalities, you were talking about initiatives that, that have been started years ago, correct? Correct.
2: Uh, the... Uh The liberal government's uh, sort of places to grow strategy, which really was a pretty comprehensive strategy that talked about transit nodes. Right. Right. And, you know, if we are going to be asked to invest in transit, let's have a plan that shows intensification around those major transit stations rather than scattered throughout the city and not properly serviced by transit. Correct. So that over time, there are more and more people complaining that, that they're stuck in gridlock. I, you know, you can look at transit two ways
3: as a Torontonian like I've been I've lived my entire life south of Steeles. And I've, I've lived in Toronto. And I you know, I, I grew up we were talking, you know, before we came in about how there used to be rush hour. Uh, you know, there were times of the day where you knew there was going to be traffic and, and now there's just traffic all the time. And you can look at it from one perspective, those living in the city and getting around within the city, but also Toronto is a hub for, for it drives the entire economy, really, frankly, of the province and probably the country, if you think about it. Right. And to have people who are living 45 minutes out of the city, struggling to get in to come to work is another issue. So it's not just in the city, but it's also coming in and getting out of the city too. And, you know, my view is, Whether it's the city or whether it's the province, really there should be one voice directing things as opposed to what I perceive to be conflicting interests trying to derive what should be a macro strategy.
2: And Uh, and we were talking prior, and and that coordination makes even more sense in a case where development is going to continue to be an important driver of the economy of of the province and the city. Right. Right. I mean, particularly with – we were just saying – with NAFTA having negative impact on the car industry. Right. I mean, there's a big driver of the Ontario co- economy that could struggle for the next uh, period of time. And all of a sudden, you look to development and you say, what can we do to sort of make sure that this happens and continues to happen in a strong way? And again, in a coordinated way. We're not talking about a free-for-all where people should be able to do whatever they want, wherever they want. But it would be nice in the areas where people are expecting intensification to see it happen in a more streamlined way than it's happening right now.
3: Yeah, at the end of the day, there has to be jobs for people so that they can collect the taxes. I mean, and and right now, the development charges are such a key part of the budget for the city. I I, I really I, I really don't understand how um, the city can afford to not allow these developments to go through because it brings more people into the city, which means people, more people, individuals are paying property tax, but also the development charges themselves are crucial to, to, to the budget. So uh, I don't know. Yeah.
1: And, and every time you look and see a crane in the sky, that represents thousands of jobs across all the different sub-trades and consultants that are involved in the project. Of course. So the development industry creates jobs in and of itself, but it also creates the offices for other jobs and, and the homes for workers to, to move to what you, what you mentioned was the most economically important region of Canada. I think is responsible for about a third of our national GDP. So th- this is where the jobs are and it, and it makes a lot of sense to build homes where the jobs are and to build more offices for more jobs to uh, to kind of concentrate in these areas. So how do you think the the city, let,
3: let's be optimistic, what do you think the city could do to properly implement the existing provincial legislation regarding property densities and, and planning issues? It may, be the, it may be the Conservatives come in with new legislation, but as it exists right now, what do you think the city could do better? And what would you like to see?
1: I'll I'll say that normally what happens is the city updates its official plan to reflect provincial policy, and there's a lag uh, between when provincial policy is implemented and when that official plan is updated. I think that lag, uh, that timeline should be shortened. And then there's this further lag from when the zoning bylaw is updated to reflect the official plan. So there's this kind of cascade of policy documents that ultimately affect what you can build, you know, what you can build and where, um, and and shortening those timelines and making sure that they're all more responsive to the strategy, which is ultimately set by the province, uh, happens a lot quicker.
2: The other thing is, it's not just the city. I think the province also has a a possibility of improving things. For sure. With changes to the Ontario Municipal Board and bringing in LPAT, which was driven by by the city appealing to the Liberal government, um, there are more roadblocks to getting a project approved and more uncertainty around the approval process if you're at a at a deadlock with the city as far as the viability of a project. If you bring something forwards and an area says this doesn't fit, there is no longer a possibility to sort of go to the board and start from scratch and present your case purely on planning and urban design rationale. And some tweaks to a fairness and a balance between where we came from to where we are now, uh, I think it sets the stage for... You know, at least the uh, developers having an option to go somewhere where they're comfortable. Where if they're facing political uh, gridlock, they can they can find another avenue to getting a project
3: right. Perfect. So let's just explain for the listeners. The the, the former paradigm was that if if you uh, had a disagreement with the municipality where you're trying to get a development through, you could appeal to the Ontario Municipal Board, which was a provincial body made up presumably of experts who could deal with things on a planning issue and sort of take out the political ramifications of the projects and just look at it from a purely design you know functionality and whether it complied with with existing bylaws however the new regime is different right uh, the process isn't the same so Explain what the new process is as, as, as best you can.
1: Sure. So, so the new process devolves a lot of that power from the fr- province down to the city. Uh, so one major change, for example, is that OMB hearings used to be what's called de novo, meaning that the planning department's decision has no bearing on the ultimate outcome. They, they start from first principles. They look at the relevant policy and they make a decision. Now, if you appeal to the LPAT, which is the local planning appeal tribunal, You're starting already from a basis where the process is biased in favor of what the municipal decision was. So instead of being a proper check on that municipal power, it actually is a double, is a second look at the process. Um, So the appeal, the idea is that the OMB um, uh, didn't allow for enough municipal decision making. This returns a lot of that decision making to the city, which removes the the whole point of it being kind of a check and balance on that power.
3: Okay. Do you see any problems with the, the current plan or what would you like to see in the city plan that you think would help move things forward?
1: There's this whole range of housing typologies that, that we have to talk about. So in Vancouver right now, they're looking at upzoning um, any neighborhood that's zoned for single detached houses to duplexes, which you know is a gentle form of density that does increase the supply of housing and, and provide more homes for people. Two-thirds of our residential land here in Toronto is zoned for detached housing only. So updating our our zoning bylaw and our official plan to allow for denser forms of low-rise, mid-rise, and high-rise construction, ultimately, we need the whole range in different parts of the city. And as much as possible, we need for that to be allowed as of right, meaning that we don't have to go through these rezoning applications and be subject to a small group of residents uh, who might oppose it for whatever reason. Do you think there's enough mixed-use zones in the city
3: where people can sort of walk to their work? You know, like, it seems to be pretty clearly delineated it's residential and then there's commercial and then there's of course there's industrial and nobody nobody wants to live beside industrial but the way people work in the modern age, either working from home or doing consulting work or wanting a lifestyle where it's walkability. Do you, do you think the city responds to that now with the, its current
1: plan? I live uh, right next door to an employment area. So this would be for industrial uses. Uh, in that employment area, there's a coffee shop and there is a brewery. There's no reason why that can't fit on, on, on the corner of a nice residential neighborhood. I think we need more mixed use to your point, And that allows the market to kind of adjust and, and build more commercial when needed, more residential when needed. And it allows for, for to your point, point more walkable dense communities where you could walk to the coffee shop the grocery store without these being kind of completely separated uses
3: the other thing that strikes me and i I touched upon it earlier is transit right how do we get around how do you get from work to home how do you get your kids to school and you know my perspective is there's there's tons of competing interests here there's the people that live downtown who are faced with people coming like every every day rushing in and rushing out through their neighborhoods and then there's the people who are just trying to get to work what kind of improvements would you see? And it, this can be anything. I'm just throwing it open. It doesn't have to be Subway or X or Y, but what would you do? I
2: think part of what we have to do as a development industry yeah. is convince people that we're not the devil and we're doing good things. Right. You know, I'm constantly hearing the... Said the devil. Right. <laughs> I'm okay with the nomenclature, but, you know, the reality is You think about it. Every time you see a high-rise residential building going up, we're creating homes for 250 families. And really, we're a consolidator of those homes. We're only doing it because there's demand. We're not building these things based on the if-come-if people are there. There's strong demand, and it's a pretty conservative industry. In the condo business, you need to be pre-sold to a large degree before you get financing to to start construction. You can't can't finish a tower. Exactly. So, you know, people say there's all kinds of disruptions because people have construction vehicles on the streets and whatever, but think of that compared to building two hundred and fifty homes. You know, the impact is quite compact, it's well organized, it's being done by top quality professionals. Right. I think the industry has a job to do on its own, aside from the politics, to convince people that This is one of the best construction and development industries anywhere in the world. If you look at the number of projects going on and you look across the board, how rarely you read about a tragedy taking place at a high-rise construction site or on the street around one, things are being done in a pretty smart way and they're being financed in a pretty conservative way. And somehow, politics has found a way to sort of make us the bad guys in filling a need of something that is a real driver of a growing city. Right.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, you know, like, and I think people confuse concepts of affordable housing with sort of the housing that may actually be required by working families. Right? There's a distinction. Right? This we only yeah. have time for one question. Like, when you're trying to consider, you know, how people live, there's different ways of approaching it. And and I think the public, I think, actually needs to be more aware. Of what affordable housing means in the context of overall housing. And I think that's part of why your your group is being demonized, right? Like,
2: I think it's always easy to, to, to say that we need more affordable housing, and no one can disagree with it. The issue is, how do you get there? The industry is there driven by supply and demand to provide housing. And obviously, the economics need to make sense. But supply is an important part of keeping the market healthy. And today's, what people define as luxury housing is next generation's more affordable housing and the generation after that, depending on demographic change, perhaps affordable housing. You look at apartment buildings that were built in the 60s, and often they're quite affordable. We need to keep refreshing the stock to be able to have that mix. The problem is because of policy, we haven't had anything delivered for a very long time.
3: I think you're right. Unfortunately, we we can't discuss this further. We'll come back next month and we'll carry on where where, where we left off. Thank you both for coming in today. Thank you. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about mindful parenting on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa.
4: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. My
3: next guest is local yogi, Tracy Segrati. She has a post-secondary education in biology, molecular biology, nursing, acute care, public health education, and Swedish and Thai massage. She leads classes and teaches other yogis how to teach yin yoga. Welcome back to the show.
5: Thanks, Jamie. I'm so happy to be here. I kind of get wowed whenever I hear you read my introduction. I too. know.
3: You're like a jack of all <laughs> trades. You have so many things on you. I'm trying to think, what would mine sound like? I don't
5: know. No, it would be really good.
3: This is part of our mindfulness series, yeah. which I'm enjoying immensely, I have to tell you. Oh, I'm so and, glad. And I'm I am And I'm getting too. tremendous value out of it and I hope our listeners are too. I think they are.
5: Fantastic.
3: Now it's September and we're back to school and back to work and mm-hmm. it's a stressful Time for parents, mm-hmm. and uh, we both agreed it would be helpful at this time of year to talk about mindful parenting. Yeah, yeah. So, what is mindful parenting?
5: Okay, so I want to begin by saying that. The techniques I'm going to talk about and, and just in outlining mindful parenting, who we're really speaking to is anybody who is caring for children. So that's grandparents right. or anyone who's the primary caregiver. So I just wanted to say that on the outset. Yep. Mindful parenting is a skill that you can incorporate as a parenting technique that is a little different in that it's more than just you practicing mindfulness yourself. Oh, okay. Okay. And um, so I, I've kind of outlined five things that you could define as mindful parenting. And the first one is it's building a foundation of attunement with a child that you're with, whether it's your grandchild or your child. And that means setting aside time every day to spend time with them. Even if that time is, say you've got 15 minutes allotted to every day, right? Because you're not going to
3: have much more than that.
5: Exactly. If you're working full time or you've got a lot of competing interests on your time, maybe it's 15 minutes, but that's fine. If it's 15 minutes, you spend the time with them, you sit down with them, and you're totally present with them and you allow them to self-direct. So if it's a younger child, that means self-directed play. And if it's an older child, they direct the conversation. But you're very present, meaning that you're not in your head trying to plan out, what you have to do after you finish this 15 minute allotment and in that way you really build this beautiful relationship with them where they can count on you right to be present with them.
3: You know, I find that time can be at mealtime because uh, absolutely, that's when you actually get more information out of your kids. If you ask them direct questions, they're not going to tell you. But if you are able to listen to what they want to raise yes. while they're in between chewing, I think yeah. you're going to find you're going to get a lot of information and be able to connect with them.
5: Totally, totally. That's so true. And I mean, the other thing is there's lots of research to show that having family meals together yep. has such a positive effect on relationships. Right? I agree.
3: It's an integral part of our parenting plan and has been for decades
5: yeah that's awesome us too us too and it's harder when they're little obviously because they're they're kind of crazy when they're little but it makes a huge difference it's
3: just plain hard because yeah. uh you know everybody has you know the hockey or gymnastics yeah. Yeah. or there's stuff that you want yeah. to do And it's not always easy to coordinate, but it is important. Sorry, I interjected.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So the second piece that I would say is really making a concerted effort to monitor your own stress and distress, Mm. because all the research shows that the thing that actually causes kids stress is it's not actually the overscheduling. It's your distress. Right. And that's because of mood contagion. Right. So this is a well-known phenomenon whereby we're in our own mood, right? Right. We're going off the rails ourselves in terms of our behavior and our emotions. And that's contagious. It's contagious to the whole household. They feel it. They're much more porous than us. There's a looser boundary for them between where they end and we begin. Hmm. Um, There's some, there's a little bit of enmeshment. And when they're younger, there's, there's a lot more enmeshment. So it's very hard for them to discern if you're feeling stressed, if it's about them or not. And then, so they end up taking it personally. Hmm. Right. So it's is fascinating. So the next thing I would say is noticing your feelings and really regulating them when you're in conflict with your kid. Hmm.
3: That's a toughie.
5: It's really tough. You know, it's so easy for us to be good when things are going well. Right. Right. And that's why at the beginning, when we first started talking, I said, you know, having a mindfulness practice is not the same as parenting mindfully. right? Because you could have a mindfulness practice, but then when you get into conflict with your kid, just lose, you know, lose your is your
3: and nobody knows how to push your buttons like your kid, right? Yeah,
5: yeah. So just really noticing them, your own feelings and regulating them before you respond, which kind of goes into my next point, which is trying to insert the sacred pause before you respond in anger. You know, it's so rare that responding in anger is actually productive. I would you agree know, with that. You know, unless it's for, you know, causes of social justice or something. But outside of that, right. responding in anger is just not productive for relationships. So really Really learning to rein yourself in and take a pause and connect to your breath and really modify what you're about to say before you respond in anger. Okay. And one more point. I just want to say one more point. The last point on mindful parenting is really learning to listen. And you brought this up in terms of, you know, eating dinner with them. Really learning to listen, even when you don't agree with what you're saying. Or what they're saying. Sorry. Right. Uh, because this will allow you to develop compassion and empathy for them.
3: Right. And they're going to express themselves in very different ways, right? Yeah. And particularly when they go into their teen years, they're not going to be as talkative. You're going to have to pick up on their moods and understand sort of how the way they express their emotions. Because obviously, as a parent, you're around them and you, you become attuned to it, as you were saying. Yeah. But picking up on those day-to-day things is super important to sort of figuring out what's going on, right?
5: Yeah. Like that attunement, that's actually a key facet of mindful parenting attunement. And you're so right. I mean, at every developmental stage, whether, you know, they're preteens or teens or you've got toddlers or preschoolers, they all, based on the developmental stage, they'll have a particular way of expressing themselves. And the other thing is they'll have a window of tolerance. And I think this concept is key for parents to understand. You know, your window of tolerance, it expands and contracts based on what's going on in your life. Right. So if your kid is going through social transitions, they're trying to discern what their identity is. There's a lot of pressures on them to make decisions about university or courses that they're taking or what kind of risks they're going to engage in, right. you know, social risks, then their window of tolerance could be very contracted. So then when you add a pressure on them and they freak out and you don't understand why it's because what's happening underneath. What you see on the surface right. is, you know, has a lot of depth, and we have to really be aware of that, right. so that we can parent what's really happening rather than the behavior that we're seeing.
3: All right, so we've talked about sort of general approaches, yeah. But I know you have some specific techniques and hints that, you know, we can use mindfulness as a real tool. Day yeah, to day.
5: yeah, yeah. Let's go through them. Let's okay, go, go ahead. Them. Okay, so the first one is for the parent or the caregiver, and the technique is called Stop. S T O P. It's a super simple. So the S is for stop. Right? So
3: it's so stop and stop.
5: It's just stop you and stop. Sh- you should just stop. Stop and stop. Find the sacred pause. So as soon as you feel like you're going to open your mouth, imagine yourself zippering it shut, stop. Mm-hmm. Take a deep breath, is the T. Oh, observe what's happening. So observe what's happening in you. Observe your body. Observe your level of tension. Observe the child. And then proceed with skillful and attuned action. That means parent what's actually happening rather than the behavior that you see in front of you. Because there's something underneath the behavior. Right. Okay. So that's the acronym STOP. And that can be really used for kids of any age. Right. The second technique is a body scan, and this is really great for kids who have trouble sleeping, maybe because they have anxiety or they're fearful it's a little harder to do with older kids or teenagers, but when they're younger, if you start doing this it will build it'll build the skill set into into their minds right and uh, so basically you just lie them down in bed and you just scan their body so what do you you, mean so yeah so you tell them to close their eyes Mm -hmm. and you tell them to bring their awareness to the body parts that you name and just to notice how they're feeling so you might go hands arms shoulders chest belly hips thighs shins feet head Mm-hmm. And you just do it much slower and you just allow them to be really, really aware of what's happening mm-hmm. and it helps them to sleep. The next two actually are great for teens. Uh, the first one is breathing and you can just get them to sit in a chair when they're feeling anxious, enraged or frustrated mm-hmm. and just connect them to their breath. Get them to notice their breath as it moves in through the nose, into the chest and into the belly without trying to change it and get them to do it for one to five minutes and then ask them how they feel after. And then the final one, which is great for teens and even young adults, is called Stop the Story. Okay, what, what's that about? So, Often we create stories about what we think is happening in our head and very rarely are they ever true or logical or rational. Right. Okay. So when you notice that your teen or young adult is going into a story that's black and white, that's representative of a cognitive distortion, right? I'm a failure. I can't do this. It's never going to work for me. Something. Those are some examples. So you tell them to sit down, stop the story. So go into the head and look at what story you're telling yourself Really challenge the story. Anything that's a polarity or black and white isn't valid. Right. Right. And then to focus, to reorient their attention on the things that are working really, really well and approach things with a growth mindset, which is the mindset that you can learn and grow anything at any time at any stage of your life
3: as opposed to saying, you know, this is impossible. I'm, I'm," you know, to bring them back to a place where they're more receptive in listening to that. I think the hardest part would be leading by example.
5: Absolutely. This is the key, Jamie. This is the key. I mean, they mirror us, right? Right. So if you want them to learn emotional regulation or to actually sit down and practice mindful techniques, you have to do it.
3: Well, that's fantastic advice. We have to take a break. Sadly, you'll come back next month.
5: I can't wait. I can't wait.
3: Awesome. When we come back, we're going to learn about cooking with kids on the tonic
4: and now the soul segment with spiritual medium transpersonal therapist and teacher lisa marvin through her use of tarot cards your questions about love money and career are sure to be answered hi everyone thanks for joining me for this week's soul segment today we'll be focusing on your relationships The way this works is that I pulled three cards to get a glimpse as to what to expect for the week. The first card is the energy that has brought you to where you are now. The second card is what you need to focus on right now. And the third card is the energy that's going to carry you into the future. The first card that we're going to look at is the Five of Cups. You might have been feeling a little more sensitive in a particular relationship. You may feel a little upset about how someone is treating you or painful feelings that may have arisen. This week, the energy that's gonna help you is the Four of Pentacles. The Four of Pentacles means that within your relationships, it's important to not take any major actions. Just sit back and wait for the positive changes to occur because your negative feelings will change over time. Once you do that, you have the energy of the Ten of Cups with you. The Ten of Cups talks about feeling a sense of immense joy and celebration within your relationships. So, although you may be feeling like you're going through a bit of a hurdle, just be patient and know that you'll feel wonderfully connected once again. Thank you for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you next week. This has been the Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca.
3: The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighbourhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa.
4: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
3: Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer and mother of three teenagers, my next guest is also the reasonably popular cookbook reviewer for Tonic Magazine, my wife, Naomi. And the reason I say reasonably, actually, she's extremely popular. I'm just messing with her. And she's in today to talk about cooking. Hi, honey.
6: Hi. Thank you for the nice introduction.
3: No problemo. So today we're talking about cooking with kids, right? Mm-hmm. So people think that kids aren't necessarily tremendously helpful in the kitchen or kids capable of doing stuff, but that's not true, is it?
6: No, it's not true. First of all, helpful has a few different meanings. True. Let's say you're trying to entertain a child, whether it's your child, grandchild, and you know, it's a project. So I certainly a strategy I've used myself. Okay, let's have some fun. Let's make spaghetti sauce or even better. Let's make cookies. So that's something that they'll say, yay. You know, they like to help. They like to do big people stuff and they like to spend time with you. For sure. So it's something that if they like to eat, they might well be interested in cooking.
3: Okay. Um, That's sort of on the entertainment side. But in your experience, are kids capable of of sorting, putting dishes together or, or meals?
6: Yeah. I mean, honestly, when I was a kid, I did a lot of cooking. I was interested in it. You know, I had a lot of great role models mother, grandparents, I mean, grandmothers really, that I used to cook with. And I used to look at cooking magazines. I don't mean when I was three, but right. when I was 10, you know, eight, 10. By the time I was 12, I used to make full meals for my family. And I—and then, of course, the more I did, then the better I got, then the more confidence I had and then I liked doing it. So I would make you know, chicken and potatoes and cheesecake. And I was proud of myself that I could do it. It's a sense of accomplishment. And of course, everybody else was thrilled that they didn't have to cook.
3: Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and it also obviously it depends on the kid. I mean, some kids are going to be interested in cooking food and and some just, you know, just want to inhale it. They don't necessarily want to make it.
6: Yeah. And we've been watching TV, honestly. There's MasterChef Junior and kids baking shows, various kids shows. And those kids are amazing. And it just shows you like, yes, of course, they're particularly talented and interested. But if these 10-year-olds can do it, then surely any 10-year-old can do something.
3: Right. I mean, they're not at all capable of making macarons, but you know, they could probably whip together some chocolate chip cookies or some pasta or something.
6: Mm-hmm. It's a life skill. It really is.
3: So if you uh, were attempting to engage a child to come into the kitchen and, and cook, what would you do?
6: I would... Well, honestly, I would always start with dessert because yeah, a, everybody, right? It's something that my, you know, our parents did with our kids, something we did. We'd say, hey, do you want to make cookies? Do you want to make brownies? And they'd say, yay. Yay. yay yes, let's do it. So I, that's what I would start. Or their favorite food. So maybe they love steak, chicken, whatever, whatever it is they like to eat, suggest that they learn to make it with you. That right. would be a, a place to start.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And do you have any tips? because I know you've cooked with kids before, how would you help them along in the kitchen? What would you do?
6: So depending on their age, obviously the younger they are, the less attention span they have and make it easy for them. So you might need to prep some things ahead right? So yeah. don't waste time getting your ingredients out of the cupboard unless that's part of your activity. Get it ready. Get the bowls ready. Have a chair or a stool ready so they can reach it. If they're old enough, have them read the recipe and go through it and then talk about the steps in the recipe beforehand. But definitely, I mean, the biggest message is don't just show them. They have to do it. If they don't do it, if they're not working on it themselves, if their hands aren't you know literally dirty, they won't be having fun. So get them to do the measuring and then you'll show them how to do the measuring and the different, you know, this is one is a cup and this is a half a cup and this is a teaspoon. And, you know, this is the TSP means teaspoon in the recipe, like that kind of stuff. Have them actually do it because they won't remember otherwise and it won't be interesting for them.
3: Yeah, It's got to be active learning. And and it also has to be in bite-sized pieces because if you, you can't engage a child for a two hour cooking session, you know, at most, you're going to be able to engage them for a half hour, 45 minutes of actual cooking. Mm-hmm. All right. So what types of foods would you cook with kids that, you know, I know you're, you're referen- you're going to reference a cookbook, but what is it you think kids sh- could learn and should learn?
0: I
6: think they can learn pretty much anything. And that's, what I'll talk about this cookbook because that's, this philosophy. This new cookbook came out called In the French Kitchen with Kids, and it's by a Toronto author. named name's Marty Michels, and she's a blogger. Her blog's called Eat, Live, Travel, She's a teacher, so her full time job is to be a teacher, an elementary school French teacher, mm-hmm. but she also lived in France. And she runs a cooking class for kids. And her idea is that kids can make anything. You know, you don't need, if you tell them it's too complicated, they might think it's too complicated. Otherwise, they'll just say, yeah, great, croissants, yay. I like to eat them. They won't think about how complicated they are. and So, you know, set the bar high, make it so that they can achieve it, but they will. You know, like don't set any limits on them if you don't need to. So anyway, she, after her blog and her cooking classes, decided to put together this cookbook. And it's really great. Her idea is that French food doesn't have to be complicated, right. which you know, I think generally tend to think it is, but it doesn't have to be. And it's so actually when I thought about it, there's all these books that have come out lately. French women don't get fat. French kids eat everything. French children don't throw food. There's all these books right. talking about how French culture and how they have a different relationship with food than oh, for we sure. do. Right. And it wouldn't be a bad thing if we learned a little bit about that.
3: And they and they value fresh produce and the food doesn't need to be sauce heavy or complicated.
6: No, no, not at all. And so this cookbook has it just has a whole range of recipes, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, desserts. And even croissants, it's a quicker version of croissants. Still, that's one of the more complicated recipes in the book. It's not something you would just do.
3: But you actually did do some recipes with a novice cook, right? I
6: did. I had to borrow a child because my children are older and it wouldn't be fun. So I borrowed a 10-year-old.
3: Not off the street. It was a a friend's child. There was
6: consent involved, of course. A friend's 10-year-old was apparently interested to do it. So he came over and I chose the recipes kind of because I had somebody visiting as opposed to if I was living with a child and had all weekend to work on something, right. I might've chosen different recipes, but we made shepherd's pie or ashi parmentier. I'm not even sure if I pronounced that no, right, I'm not sure but it sounds much better in French than it does in English. It does. And we made berry galettes and they were, they turned out great. Yeah, they did. They really did. So we cooked them together. He was very excited. As I said, start with the dessert, because he was kept saying, can we have the pie now? Can we have the dessert now? <laughs> and so that was the motivation to finish the shepherd's pie.
3: But he was a newbie. I mean, he did not even know really how to hold a spoon, you know.
6: Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting, because I guess my kids have been cooking for so long and watching us cook that I forgot what that would be like, because he was holding the spoon funny and didn't know how to measure you know didn't know that you have to smooth out the top of the you know the measuring right and so it was i realized in working with him that i you know he really was a novice and so he did a great job yeah no he was interested and he was really happy to eat we ate the galettes right then and then we uh he took home the shepherd's pie and reported back that it was great
3: good so mm-hmm. let's talk about why it's a good idea to get kids to cook. Like, what sort of skills t- can they pick up?
6: Well, it's math. Right. Reading comprehension, organizational skills, creativity. Creativity.
3: Yeah. I mean, these are all good things. And and plus, it develops a different relationship with food. So if you have a difficult eater, I mean, our niece has come over to help cook, and she is definitely a challenged eater. But we made pizza together, and I watched her eat it. And I've also watched her play with her food for a while. And and I think she had a different understanding of, of food after sort of making it herself.
6: Yeah, we literally had to take a picture of her eating the pizza because her parents didn't believe exactly, that she Mendo. would.
3: So there's one other cookbook that you I think you want to recommend in this session. So what's that?
6: Sure. There's a, a man named Sam Cass. He was the former White House chef to the Obamas and their White House food policy advisor. And he's come out with a book called Eat a Little Better, Great Flavor, Good Health, Better World. That is
3: a very long title. (laughs) He needs a better editor. But anyways, yeah.
6: But I got this book and I thought, "Mm, this is a great book. All the recipes were not very complicated. His idea is, you know, eat healthy, cook more. And you don't have to eat. It's not a diet cookbook. You know, he said a little bacon fat is good always. So he's got a range of all these different ways to cook vegetables and make them delicious. You know, roast them, grill them, raw beans, grains, but also pork shoulder, roast chicken, steak. It was a really good selection of recipes. And he also had really great tips for how to organize your kitchen and your food you know, your fridge and your cupboards to make it easier to eat healthy. So this is a
3: practical
1: cookbook.
6: Yeah, it was very practical. So this isn't about cooking with kids, but it's about cooking for them, for a family, getting kids interested in eating and cooking and spending more time together as a family.
3: Well, those are all uh, worthy goals. Thank you for coming on the show today. You're welcome. When you come back next month, we're going to talk about genius recipes. I'm excited about that, right? Yeah. Excellent. When we come back to the tonic, we're going to talk about the natural treatment of hypothyroidism. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighbourhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine and vice versa.
4: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
3: Welcome back. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of medical issues and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So your focus is on hypothyroidism, right? That's one of your passions in in, in dealing with?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's correct.
3: So how did you become interested in hypothyroid or thyroid health?
0: Well, it actually started because about seven years ago, I was noticing changes in my own health that I couldn't figure out. And when I went to my medical doctor, they kept running tests. Everything came back normal. Uh, They kept saying everything's fine. But I was noticing these symptoms. I was gaining weight despite Mm -hmm. working out and having a really healthy diet. I was feeling cold all the time, really, really cold. And my thought pattern wasn't what it used to be. So after a little bit more digging and finally running some more tests, I found that I actually had hypothyroidism myself. Oh,
3: okay. So ND, treat thyself. That's correct, yeah. Okay, so for those who don't know, let's do a little 101. Sure. What what is the thyroid gland?
0: It's an endocrine organ, meaning it's a hormone gland that's Mm -hmm. found in the neck. It's butterfly-shaped. It sits right... Below your voice box or your larynx,
3: and what what does it do? What does the thyroid do?
0: It produces a few hormones, but there's two really important hormones it produces, known as T3 yep. and T4, and those hormones control your metabolism.
3: Right? Doesn't the thyroid sort
0: of create the hormones that sort of regulate all the other hormones? Isn't it, that? It does. It's a master gland. Yeah, and it's re- a lot of people find it very interesting because it is the master metabolism gland. So right. w- w- when people hear metabolism, they think weight loss, and that's true. It controls how much weight you gain or how little weight you gain, but it also controls how your heart beats, how your brain functions, how even the rate of breathing. So metabolism is kind of all encompassing, not just about weight.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's super important.
0: It is. Yes.
3: Okay. So what are the signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism?
0: So like I mentioned before, one of the big ones, and a lot of ones that people are aware of, is this weight gain. Right. When the thyroid isn't functioning as well, when it starts to slow down, those hormones, the T3 and T4, start to reduce, so metabolism slows down or reduces as well, and then you gain weight, you become more heavier. But there's other signs, too, The T3 and T4 also keep the temperature in your body higher, so people start to feel cooler, maybe they're not thinking as well, mood changes can be part of low-functioning thyroid, so more anxiety and depression. Right. Also, if your metabolism slows down, you're not going to the bathroom as much. So one might find themselves a little bit more. Well, that could be a plus,
3: right? I mean, you don't want to be constipated.
0: You don't want to be. No one wants to be constipated. Nobody wants to be constipated. No.
3: You know, it's interesting. Some of the symptoms that you're talking about, you know, can be attributed to aging too, though, right? It
0: can. And that's the whole issue is that a lot of times, even when I went to my doctor and I was only in my 20s, my doc said, you know, this is part of getting older. I know you're only in your 20s, but, you know, women gain weight as they get older. Maybe not in their 20s, though, right? Well, after puberty is what he was saying, no, right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's changes, and as changes with the period as well, which is part of uh, signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism. So that's why sometimes low functioning thyroid can become masked because it's chalked up to aging or just natural progression in life.
3: So I imagine a challenge would be sort of dissecting whether or not it's it's an actual hypothyroid issue or whether you're just naturally aging, right? That's which right. which I assume is the difficulty that sort of traditional medical science sort of doesn't
0: necessarily address, right? That's right. Yeah. And that's even a, a bigger issue right now, because uh, conventionally, how thyroid disease is always tested mm-hmm. in the medical space is, is testing something called TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone. But we know from new research that that's actually missing some of the hypothyroid patients. So there's more thyroid tests you can run, you can actually measure the amount of thyroid hormones in your blood, the T3 and T4, with with blood work too, but they're not as commonly measured. So right now, actually, there's a petition to the government set forth by a woman named Pat Elliott in Mm -hmm. Oshawa, asking the government to change these parameters, saying, you know, we have research showing that the TSH, T3 and T4 all give really important information about the thyroid and can help diagnose earlier or be more efficient at diagnosing. Let's change the guidelines.
3: So does OHIP cover this testing that you're referring to now or does it, it not? It does
0: cover if you get it tested by a medical doctor. If a naturopathic doctor like myself was to order it, it doesn't OHIP doesn't cover it. But naturopathic oh. doctors can order these tests. Do you know what the cost is of the test? if, if a TSH test is probably around twenty dollars. Okay. T three and T four might be about fifteen dollars each. So they're not huge. So dollars. even if
3: it isn't covered, it's it's pretty important to get it tested if you think that's where you're where you're at. That's right. right. Yeah. Now we're talking about women. Is this something that affects men too, or is it, it
0: does? It's more common in women. Okay. So right now in Canada, about one in eight people over their lifetime will develop a hypothyroid or a thyroid issue. Oh, wow. That's big numbers. Yeah. So over 12%. And of that 12%, it's more common in women. Right. And the most common thyroid issue is something called Hashimoto's, actually, which is an autoimmune issue. And what is that? So the immune system, as as people know it, it helps fight bacteria. It keeps us healthy. It ramps up when we have an infection. Right. Sometimes the immune system can get a little faulty and start overproducing inflammation Mm -hmm. or actually... Actually attack your own body and so with Hashimoto's it's a form of autoimmune against the thyroid gland ah. so your your body starts attacking the thyroid gland causing it to reduce in function hmm
3: all right. So how is hypothyroidism treated in Canada now? And I'm sure you have some thoughts on whether that's appropriate.
0: Yeah. Currently, the most common way is using a product known as l or Synthroid. It's levothyroxine. It's a synthetic form of the T4 hormone.
3: And this is, if you went to your doctor, this is typically what they would prescribe?
0: That's right. Yeah. And it's very commonly prescribed. It's one of the most common, because hypothyroidism is so common, this synthetic form of T4 is one of the most common prescriptions that's given out right now. Okay. The T4 medication does absolutely help many people. Mm-hmm. There's a large amount of patients that I've seen. This actually ha- happened to myself. I went on the T4 medication, as did many of my patients. My TSH looked normal on blood work, but my symptoms were still the same. I had still had the weight on me. I still felt cold. So even though my blood work said, oh, you're okay now, I didn't feel that way. You didn't way. feel
3: it and you didn't notice it. That's but... right.
0: So part of this petition that I spoke about before is also asking the government to have more access to something called desiccated thyroid which is a form of thyroid medication that's extracted from a pig's thyroid. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. It's still a pharmaceutically made. It's made in Canada by a pharmaceutical company called Erfa. In order to access it you need a prescription through a pharmacy, but it contains both the T3 and the T4. Hormones. So it's not just the T4 hormone.
3: As a naturopath, can you prescribe it? Yes,
0: or? yeah, naturopaths can, yes. And what's really interesting about taking both the hormones is when you take the T4 hormone, your body has to convert it into T3. So even though, I, as I said, the thyroid produces those two main hormones... The T3 is the active form. The T3 is what actually helps you lose weight. The T3 is what makes you feel better, gives you more energy. So when you're taking the T4 only, that synthetic T4, you're relying on your body to convert it to the active form. Some people have actually a genetic disposition that doesn't allow them to convert it that well. So when you take the desiccated form, when you take the T3 and T4 hormone together, studies show that uh, a lot of patients experience reduction in symptoms more so than taking the T4 alone.
3: And this may be a redundant question, but if, if, if it's prescribed, I presume it's covered by OHIP?
0: Sometimes it uh-huh. is. So again, with a medical doctor, it would be covered by... OHIP. By a naturopathic doctor, it might not be covered by OHIP, but drug and insurance benefits plans would probably cover it.
3: Okay. And what natural therapies are there that help the thyroid gland? Oh, there's so many. Let's hear about them.
0: So what do you want to talk about? Vitamins, herbs? You tell me.
3: Top tip. If somebody were to come in with a problem, what would you start with?
0: There's two supplements that have been shown through the literature to be very effective in benefiting the thyroid, and they're really cheap too. So zinc and selenium Mm -hmm. are two nutrients that help to actually convert that T4 into the T3 hormone naturally. Whether you're on prescription medication or not, your body still needs to convert it right. to the active form. Yep. Those have, have been very effective in symptom management and also showing on blood work to improve the T3 function. Those are two of my favorite supplements. Herb-wise, ashwagandha or withania. Have you heard of this one?
3: I hear of all, you know, I, I'm a health and wellness guy, so I hear about it. Yep. But for, for our listeners.
0: Okay, so ashwagandha is a herb that's been used in Ayurvedic medicine. Sure. For years and years, for many different reasons. And it has been shown also through research to improve thyroid hormone output from the thyroid gland and to also help to reduce stress in the body. And that's another issue with the thyroid. As with all hormone balance, we need to work on the stress piece.
3: We have really time for one more question. And how, how would you recommend people deal with the stress?
0: Really? I'd say whatever works for them. It's again, as a naturopathic doctor, you're looking at the patient as an individual and everybody deals with stress and a different way. And everybody likes to relax in a different way. So it's finding that sweet spot for your own, for yourself, which really brings you to that relaxation. It could be yoga. It could be taking a bath. It could be in the morning, just having half an hour and having some tea and a little bit of meditation. But whatever you connect with is really important because it has to work for that
3: person. That makes sense. If people have more questions they want to reach out to, how can they do that?
0: You can find all my information on my website at thyroidtruths.com. And if you look on the internet for me, Dr. Emily Lipinski or Thyroid Truce, it's all there.
3: Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomeradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Naomi Bussin, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic magazine. Tonic is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss how to have that long-term care conversation, meal planning 101, and so much more. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week.
1: Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program.